Good morning. We're very glad you're here. Turn to Exodus 25. To all of the mommies, happy Mother's Day to you. We're especially glad, not just that you're here, but that you are. You bless us in many ways. Um, the whole mommy thing is, is, is God's design, and so we can celebrate it in a God-honoring and worshipful way this morning. I want to encourage you all that while, while it may not particularly be a Mother's Day sermon, there is certainly encouragement uh, for mothers in the daily movement of the pattern of the tabernacle. As we look at the life of the priesthood, some of the monotony, some of the mundane Tuesdays, some of the, if I have to do the same thing or say the same thing over and over again, I'm going to lose my mind moments, are all informed by the beauty of the tabernacle that we're going to engage in Exodus 25 this morning. So I feel like the most loving thing I could do to honor mothers and the Lord this morning is get to the part about Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, who's seen The Rookie? It's the movie The Rookie. It's a Disney movie. I know. I lose cool points right now. There's a part where he comes in and he pats the guy on the shoulder. He says, he says you know what we get to do today? And he says, what? Well, he says, we get to play baseball. And he just has the biggest smile on his face. I feel that way about getting to the Word this morning. It may sound like the cheesiest pastoral thing I could possibly say, but I am so encouraged that we get to gather on a day like today and go to the Word, and that the Spirit is present, that God is good. So let's pray, and we'll jump into it. Lord, I come to you now, and uh, I'm thankful for today. I'm thankful that we each woke up this morning with mercies that were new. I'm thankful that you sustained us through the night, that in peace we can lay down and sleep because you alone make us dwell in safety. I'm thankful that we're here this morning with uh, family and friends and fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we're not here without you, but we're here because of you and you're present with us. Lord, I'm excited about our time in the Word this morning, and my prayer is that you would allow us to pay attention to details for your glory. Help us not to get bogged down in the very blessings uh, that you have ordained. Lord, we just sang, we offered a sacrifice of praise that talks about how holy you are. Lord, you are holy. There's no one like you. You are altogether different. There is no one who gives you strength. There is no one who gives you counsel. There is no one who was sitting with you other than you and your triune state when you made your plans and in infinite wisdom from before time began. There's no one like you. When we need strength, we come to you because there's no one like you. As we move through our day, we focus on you and we center on you because there's no one like you. You are holy, set apart, different distinct from your creation. Lord, as we are a people who uh, are called to go forth and make disciples uh, and have an impact in the neighborhoods and, and the city we live in, I want to pray this morning uh, for a number of new um, uh, city officials. Lord, with the election now behind us, um, we are called to pray for those who are in leadership. Uh, we've done it at the, at the national level, and, and we do it at the, at the 
county level this morning and, and pray, Lord, that um, for anyone who is stepping into a new role, that they would honor and glorify you in that. For anybody who's stepping out of a role, that they would honor and glorify you in that. Lord, I pray that we would never be divided over political details, but that we would see them as not what's most important. And because our eyes are fixed on Christ, uh, we can be encouraged through seasons that may otherwise be discouraging and hard and difficult. So we pray, Lord, that those who have been elected, that they would serve this city well and that this city would be a city for your glory. I pray particularly for Steve Reed, our new mayor. Lord, he is a professing brother in Christ. And because of that, my prayer for him today is that he would step into that role in a way that seeks to honor and glorify you first and foremost in everything. And that whether we agree or disagree with different points along the way, because of all of the baggage and history here in Hunt County, I, we, my hope is that we would continue to pray and support and be encouraging. Lord, you're so good. I'm thankful for moms this morning. I'm thankful that as, as we celebrate Mother's Day and there's already been a lot of sweet gifts given and, and sweet encouragements and homemade cards, uh, I pray that, uh, that you would bless moms today. I pray that you would encourage them as they walk in truth, as they seek to, to, to serve their families and as, as they are able to laugh at the days to come because of the encouragement that they have from their Lord. I pray that every mom in this room uh, would, would keep her way pure by guarding it according to your word. I pray that you would give each of them a hunger for the word and a desire to be closer to you knowing that that impacts every mundane, daily, detail thing they do. Lord, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9. Start in verse 8 with me. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Last week, we started a, a series that's not a series, it's sort of just a couple of sermons. <laughs> the Covenant and Pattern Part 1, and this week is Covenant and Pattern Part 2. And what we see in these two verses is God, who has called his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he is dwelling with them, he is present with them, and he is telling them the details of the exact pattern of the tabernacle that he will require for his people. There's patterns of worship that we see that inform us. And what I want us to see before we dig in to any details is the patterns of the tabernacle will not matter at all if we don't care about the presence of God. That's going to translate at some point this morning where the patterns of life that we are called to and expressions of faithfulness will not matter. We will not persevere in them if we don't care about the presence of God. If we offered a sacrifice of praise this morning, we did not do so wholeheartedly if we do not care about the presence of God. Do you believe that God's presence is real? Do you believe that God's presence matters? Do you believe that it's, it's affecting you in some way, even right now? Because it is. So as we look at the pattern of the tabernacle, know that none of it matters if you don't care about the presence of God. 
If the Israelite doesn't care about the presence of God, it won't matter to them. That will matter ultimately. But in the daily pattern, it'll be neglected because they've taken their eyes off the Lord. Last week, we considered how Israel's, we talked about a covenant relationship, a lot like marriage, that their covenant relationship with God sets this pattern for all of life. He says, exactly as I tell you. The particulars that we looked at last week that we need to bring with us this week. There's a couple things we hit last week that we need to bring with us this week as we dig into the Word. The first is that Exodus 19 through 24 is like a wedding ceremony. I'm hoping most of y'all have been to a wedding ceremony. You know what that's like. But what we're seeing here is that the nation of Israel has been led out of Egypt through the desert, through the Isle of the Red Sea. and You can almost picture a bride coming down the aisle to be married. And Israel, the bride, is led to the base of Mount Sinai, which is like a marriage altar. And Yahweh is above the peak of Mount Sinai, and Moses is going between the two of them, officiating what's very much like a wedding ceremony. And so if that's true about those verses, then that makes Exodus 25 is like the consummation part of the covenant relationship, a picture of intimacy and a picture of knowing. This pattern of the tabernacle is important, and it's not to be dismissed. It is in the exact pattern of the tabernacle, that Israel enjoys intimacy with God, an expression of their love, that they may know him. The next thing we need to take with us is that the pattern of the tabernacle was never meant to be negotiated. If an Israelite heard God say, exactly as I tell you, so you shall make it, and they said, well, what about if we, you know, we don't want to waste any acacia wood. It's a lot of gold, isn't it? Isn't that a lot of gold, God? What if we, shouldn't we sell that and give it to the poor? We'll feed the poor with it. We'll do something that seems more noble and righteous. You don't negotiate the pattern of the tabernacle. This is a non-negotiable thing that we are talking about for Israel at their time of covenant relationship with the Lord. In the same manner that I would not negotiate marriage with my wife because of a busy schedule, so Israel is not to negotiate the pattern of a tabernacle. You don't bring that into the conversation to consider. And finally, we saw that the complexities of humanity are not easy. What God sets forth for his people for Israel in Exodus 25 is that He doesn't just give them ways to react when they hit the ditch. When things go really south and you are really down, then I'll be your God and I'll show you how to react. What he sets forth for them is a pattern of life. He's not flipping about the details of our very real ups and downs and our heartaches, about the high points of of the peaks of the mountains and, and the low points of the depths of the valleys. God's not flipping about any details. God lovingly sets a pattern for us that helps us through the details in a God-honoring and in a loving and in a fruitful way. So we posed this question last week. This, this was the first, uh, the first question that I got via text. Um, sometimes when we're done here, I'll go to my phone and there's already texts um, um, saying, what, huh, how? And uh, one of the first ones was, well, what is our exact pattern? What, how does that translate to us now? What is our exact pattern? And what we looked at last week was we wanted to know how much exactness was a realistic expectation for Israel. And what we found was that over a third of the book of Exodus, that's a lot, over a third of the book of Exodus is full of the exactness that God required of them. Exodus 25, 9 says this, read it with me, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. A.W. Pink refers to this section of scripture, this third of the book of Exodus, as the longest, most blessed, but least read and least understood sections of Scripture. He goes on to say, 
It is a fact worthy of our closest and fullest consideration that more space is devoted to an account of the tabernacle than to any other single object or single uh, subject treated in the scriptures. How's that play out? Well, it normally plays out of we're going to do an Exodus study. And once I'm done with Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, we're pretty much done with the study. Like most churches, they don't have time set aside to jump into this. And um, we stumbled into it, to be honest, on Wednesday nights going through it. I looked at the details and I said, you can't really teach that. They're just, we're just going to get bought. I can't even read it, much less come up with something worthwhile to say about Jesus in regards to it. And before I even tried, I found myself getting bogged down in these details. We can't do that. It's in the very details that we enjoy Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look more closely at the details of the life of the priest. For it is in the priesthood that we are able to observe many of the details of the pattern of the tabernacle. You could say that the pattern of the tabernacle is reflected in the daily life of a priest. It would be like saying, I want to know what that church is about. If I could follow a pastor around for a while, I could probably figure out what the church is about, right? So what we're going to do this morning to understand the pattern of the tabernacle is look at the life of the priest. Turn to Exodus 28, just a little bit to the right. Now, I want to encourage you before we dive in, we're about to get to the details. Last week, I spared you from a lot of turning because I wanted you to climb into the story, and this week, I'm encouraging you to climb into the story by looking at the details. It's going to take work, but I promise it's worth it. As I'm reading this, at some point, you're going to say, it sounds like he's reading a grocery list, and it's hard for me to be excited about it. It sounds like he's reading a task of chores that he has to do or something, and it's not like the most riveting, moving piece of literature ever. You're going to have to fight through that this morning. I don't want to bog you down in the details, but I want us to have at least enough of a taste of the details to be able to enjoy Christ in them. So I encourage you to work hard on this. Let's read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 28. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. Now, who's speaking here? The Lord, Yahweh. And who is he speaking to? Moses. This is the time where Moses is on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and God is showing him. This is the pattern of the tabernacle. He says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Just look at God tending to the details. We're going to have some really detailed garments here for the priest. And in case you're worried about who's going to make them, I've already given some of the people a spirit of skill so that they'll know exactly how to do what I tell them to do. God is tending to all these details in such a loving way. He goes on to say in verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And then verses 6 through 43, 
explain the details of how this is to be made. Verses 6 through 43 explain the details of the priest's garments. Now, one commentator bluntly asks, and we'll ask with him, why should 21st century Christians examine or give a rip, that wasn't his words, I added that, about the wardrobe of an ancient Hebrew priest? Why should we care about what the ancient Hebrew priest was wearing? Well, because we, see, we begin to see details of the pattern of the tabernacle, even in their attire. The reason for it, the reason we should care about that, is that Aaron, pay attention, this is an important detail, Aaron, Moses' brother, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Now, there's much more to be said about that, and we'll get there. But we need to see that types, for, for Aaron to be a type of Christ, types are persons or objects or events that serve as prophetic illustrations or likenesses of New Testament fulfillments. That's a pretty wordy way of saying what we will see more fully in Christ, we will first see in part in Aaron. What we will see more fully in Christ, we will first see in part with Aaron, the high priest. So within the first five verses here, one of the main details we see in regards to the priest's garments is that they are for what? For glory and for beauty. Much of the priest's garments actually mirror the material used in the tabernacle itself. The purple and scarlet yarn, the fine twine linen, the blue, and the reason that they are said to be for glory and for beauty is that what's happening here is God's dwelling in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, and the priests are responsible for a lot of things. And so the reason they're for glory and for beauty is that they reflect the, the glory and the beauty of God who is dwelling in the midst of his people. God's saying, this is going to be the physical representation that, re- that will show in part my glory and my beauty. So don't skimp on the details. Don't negotiate non-negotiables. I'm using the pattern of the tabernacle as a means to dwell with you, and I want you to see how good I am. That's what God's saying. Now look at verses 9 through 12 in Exodus 28. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in, a setting, in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Now, when God says to do it just like that, it would not suffice to find the two rocks nearest you, take a sharpie out of your girded loins, and write the names on it, right? Would that suffice? No. You find onyx stones, and you find a jeweler, and you make sure they're in the right birth order, and make sure there's six on this one, and you make sure that there's six on this one. Why is that? Why do we have to go through that? Because God said so. It's important for them to know him and to understand who he is, and to enjoy him dwelling in their presence. At this point, I want to put a picture of the priest's garments on the screen. This is an actual photo of of Aaron that I was able to find. Um, I thought that would impress y'all. So it was a little grainy, but it's pretty good given the the age of it. Um, The priest's garments, as I continue reading, I'm going to read verses 13 through 28, and because I don't want us to get bogged down in these blessings of details, I put this up there so that as I explain those onyx stones that are set on the shoulders and the gold filigree and the chains and 
what, what this, these 12 stones on, the, on his chest and the purple. As I explain that, as you're reading, if you're thinking, okay, I can't pay attention, just look up here. Just, this is what is going to be described. So read along, look up here, do whatever's needed, but don't miss the details. Verse 13. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, adjacent, an agate, an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. The original bling. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. You shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in front of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two gold rings of gold and put them at the two, next, at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. We excited yet? Isn't this awesome? So we have this complex and this very deeply symbolic attire. But for what purpose? As I read things like that, that's... That was like, what, 10, 15 verses? A third of the book, 15 chapters is the exact pattern. And I want us to remember that no part of God's existence is random or meaningless. Not one part. It's not like we have God and most of him is reasonable and worthwhile. No part of God's existence is random or meaningless. He has never wasted a word. God has never wasted a word. There's never been a time where God said, well, hold on, I messed that up. Let me start over. God doesn't do that. There's never been a time where God said, I wish I wouldn't have said that. There's never been a time where God says, am I saying too much? (sighs) Never wasted a word. He's infinite in wisdom, and he only communicates that which is essential. Now look at verse 29. We're asking the question, this deeply symbolic attire. Okay, cool. I heard the explanation. I see what it looks like in the photograph. Now what? For what purpose? Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. See the priest doing his duties. 
Climb into the story. I say it a lot. Import your senses. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What are you hearing? Picture the priest going before God dressed like this, bringing to regular remembrance the names of God's children before him. There are two stones on his shoulders. Is the shoulder weak? No. The shoulder is a very strong part. The two stones are on his shoulders as a sign of strength. So as he bore their names on his shoulders, this indicated the responsibilities of the priest to use his strength to care for Israel. The other stones are on his chest. What's in our chest? It's our heart, right? The other stones on his chest are the high priest bearing names near his heart, showing the love which he had for them. Strength and love are the responsibilities of that priest for the people of God. You could not, you could not be a high priest who was indifferent to the needs of the people. Please don't miss that detail this morning. We see it in the attire. You could not be a high priest who was indifferent to the needs of the people. You could not bear their names on your shoulders and on your chest and go before God in the holy place and say, all right, this nation of fools, I'm here again for them. Again, again, I just made another sacrifice. That doesn't work like that. You cannot be indifferent as a high priest to the needs of the people. Now, what I want you all to picture is, imagine you're an Israelite. At this point, you're not a high priest. You're not one of Aaron's sons. You, in fact, are part of the camp. There's a tabernacle, and at the center of the, the tabernacle exists at the center of a large camp of a couple million Israelites. Have you ever been camping with more than 20 people? It feels crowded. Imagine like a, a million, and then another million, and then like another million. It's a large traveling nation. They're in the wilderness, and they're, camp, they're Mount Sinai, there's camp, and then there's tabernacle. Now, um, well, it'll, they'll move on to it. None of this has actually happened. Don't be confused by that. At this point, God's still explaining what he wants to happen. So we're reading it as though it's taking place. Now, you're an Israelite, and you take your goat to the entrance of the tabernacle. It's east-facing, which is representative of Eden, and there's a picture of like restoration here where the east-facing entrance, you're bringing your sacrifice to the priesthood, and they will take your sacrifice, and they will administer it appropriately. So imagine that you are part of the camp that's really trusting the priesthood. My question is that if you were dependent upon a high priest to do this for you regularly... If this was the means by which God would remember you and his covenant, what would your main concern be? Here, priest, this is my sacrifice. I'm trusting you. What would your main concern be at that point? I know what mine would be. If I've seen these garments and I know what these guys are supposed to do, my main concern would be, high priest, please don't forget about me. When you Don't lose my goat. And don't forget my name when you're in the holy place, bringing us to remembrance before God. That would be my concern. High priest, don't forget about me. Please bring my name to regular remembrance before God. So we have these details about the high priest, but what about the rest of the priesthood? Remember, there's an entire priesthood here. I want us to look at their consecration in chapter 29. 
I'm going to read verse 1 and then verses 4 through 9 and 29. We're, we're looking at the rest of the priesthood. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And look at verse 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on his turban. Does that remind you of anything? You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now verses 10 through 14 show that what comes next is need for a sin offering. And then verses 15 through 18 show the requirement of a food offering. Very detailed. And then look at what happens when all of this plays out in verse 19. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. Picture Moses taking a ram to Aaron and his sons who have been girded for the priesthood, clothed rightly to care for the people and serve God. Imagine them taking a goat, or the ram here, to them, and they all lay their hands on the head of that goat. What's about to happen to that goat? That goat's about to die. It's going to become a sacrifice, an offering. And so they all lay their hands on the head of that goat. And it says, And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood, and this is where it gets weird, and put it on the tip of the right ears, of Aaron, the right ear of Aaron, he only has one right ear, I'm sorry. You put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons. And on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. And then throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. This would be a place that was very bloody, lots of sacrifice. You take all the rest of that blood. It doesn't take a whole lot of blood for me to put it on the tips of the ears and the toes and the thumbs of a few guys, and you take the rest of it, you throw it on the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar and of the anointing oil, and you sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him, made holy by the blood of the sacrifice. So at this point, to be clear, we have a priesthood that is washed, clothed in exact, particular, deeply symbolic attire that is particularly for glory and for beauty, having made the, sac the required sacrifices, having made the required offerings, and now they are covered in the blood of the sacrifices. Like for us, we get a new piece of attire. We don't want anything on it. The best thing the priesthood could do is, now that you're covered in your new attire, let's cover it in blood. That's where we're at. Look at verses 22 through 25. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread 
made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on top of the burnt, on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. All of this makes up what is known as the ordination of the priests. We're seeing the pattern of the tabernacle in the clothing and the ordination of the priests, as indicated in verse 22. So what does it mean to be ordained? To ordain literally means to fill the hands of. That's what it means to ordain. To ordain literally means to fill the hands of. So an ordained pastor who feels like his hands are full is probably in a good place. So we have, at this point, a royal priesthood whose hands have been filled with strong and loving responsibilities toward the people of God and the pattern of the tabernacle for the glory of God. And what follows in the word is a very detailed seven-day ordination. And when I was ordained, it was at the end of the service, I mean, we, we, we talked, obviously, before that. Like, they didn't, they were like, what's your name again? All right, let's ordain you. That's not how it works. Uh, we, we had talked, but, I mean, at the end of the service, it was, we came up, and, and the elders prayed for me, and they gave me, like, the most awesome ESV study Bible, and, uh, and, and I was ordained. The priest had a seven-day ordination, outlining the daily sacrifices, brought by the people of God, Israel, that were to be offered in a particular and exact way by the priesthood. It's like saying, priesthood, you boys better take this seriously. There's a lot going on here, and you don't need to be negotiating things that were never meant to be negotiated, and you don't need to be paying little attention to the details. You need to pay exact attention. Seven-day ordination. And each of the rightly offered sacrifices becomes a pleasing aroma to God. Why is it pleasing to God? Well, because there's been obedience to God. When God smells that, he, he, it's a picture, a try to picture God smelling the aroma. His nose, or else he wouldn't say this. It's a sweet, pleasing aroma. Why? Because he knows what happened. He knows what they did to get to the point where that particular aroma meets him in worship. And look at what God says will happen as all this takes place according to his will. In verse 43 is where it comes together. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Think about how beautiful that is. God says, there I will meet with my people in the tabernacle, and it will be sanctified by my glory. That's how you're sanctified, by the glory of God. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't try to make ourselves more holy through the obedience. They've been obedience, but notice they're not sanctified just because they were good boys and girls. Sanctified by his glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. When he repeats things, we should pay attention. I don't want us to miss this morning that this is a picture of worship. We're not just seeing pictures of rigid, strange rituals. 
What we're seeing here is a picture of worship. When we think of worship, usually, not always, we generally think of singing. But that's one of many expressions. What we're seeing here in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, in the pattern of the tabernacle, we see the pattern setting a stage for worship that is specific and daily and sacrificial. That's what we have to see. That's worship. If someone says, how's your worship? You don't say, well, I sang pretty. Well, that, okay, that part of your worship may be great. Good job. That's great. Let's look at the other parts. Because it, it, it paints a bigger picture that worship is specific and it's daily and it's sacrificial. And in it, God is present with his people. That's why it's worship. If he wasn't there, we would just be worshiping ourselves and we would be worshiping our own ways of life. But because he's present, we're worshiping the Lord. He's present with his people and he's blessing them according to his will. This is worship. So what we have just looked at, all those details I just read, if y'all hung in, that's good. We just looked at a very small sampling of the pattern tabernacle details. Small sampling. And in each of the details, we have something to learn of Christ. And before we look at the Christ-centered details, just take hold of the reality that if we were to get bogged down in all that I just read, we could never enjoy Christ and our relationship with God, who is in the midst through the details. It's the same with us today. Each of you have lots of daily details designed by God for us to enjoy Christ as he is in our midst. Let's see how this plays out in the Word. I want to look at how this plays out in the Word, because you have lots of details in your life, and a lot of times at the end of the day, we'll, we say, well, God, it just appears that if I didn't have to go to work, and if my kids weren't unruly, and if I could figure out how to communicate with my wife, um, you know, then maybe worship, maybe I could worship you, God, maybe this would be an enjoyable relationship, but that, that's not true. That, that's not true to the Word. There are details in your marriage where you are to enjoy Christ in every detail. There are details in your parenting where you enjoy Christ, in your job where you enjoy Christ. We said last week that, that having a job and having a family was never meant to kill you. Having a job and having a family was never meant to kill you. God didn't say, I want them to worship me, but I'm going to make it hard on them by giving them a job and a family. That's not God's design. He, he moves in perfect love. He doesn't make mistakes. Turn to 1 Peter 2. I want to see how this plays out in the Word for us today. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, remember all that we just learned about the priesthood, all the details, everything from their attire to how they're moving to what their responsibilities are. And look at what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5, and then I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. And let's see how this translates to our daily life right now. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He's talking about Jesus. Did you know that um, just like Israel was rejected by Egypt and um, rejected as a nation and, and, and brought into slavery, um, and, but they were considered precious by God. That's Jesus. Jesus was rejected by men, yet precious in the sight of God. So this is an encouragement to you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer 
spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And look at what else it says about our lives in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This wasn't just written to a church a ways back. This is written to you as you sit here this morning. Let's make the connections together. So we are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood who are called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. We offer our sacrifices to God through who? Jesus Christ. If we try to negotiate that detail, it's not worship of Yahweh. The only way we worship God and offer spiritual sacrifices to him is through Jesus Christ. And without the pattern of the tabernacle in Exodus, this idea of Christians being a royal priesthood would be nothing more than a neat notion, fairly poetic, but largely empty. That's what it would be. If we didn't have the exact pattern of the tabernacle, it would be nothing more than a cool yet nebulous thought. You're a royal priesthood. Great. What does that mean? Well, we have to find out what it means by looking at Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 and all those 15 chapters Because of the exact pattern communicated in great detail by God, what I want us to see this morning is that these verses in 1 Peter 2 that refer to us as a holy nation and a royal priesthood, they should come alive for us. They should come alive for the follower of Christ. What does it say in verse 9 is the purpose of that priesthood, of us as a priesthood? What's the purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. So I have to ask the question, are you proclaiming? Are you proclaiming? I've been a bit overwhelmed lately on just seeing in the public eye and in media people who are Christians that that proclaim in a very sheepish way. No boldness. It's sort of a... Jesus is okay for me, but I don't want to say it too loud because I don't want to offend anybody. We're proclaiming excellencies. We're not being jerks who are trying to shove our religion down someone else's throat, but we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. And if that moves us at all, we will not proclaim in a way that says, well, maybe it's true. I don't know. Maybe it's real. I don't know. If we see our darkness and we see the marvelous light that we've been called to and we see the one who accomplished that, we proclaim That's why we're a royal priesthood. Are you proclaiming? Are you moved to proclamation of God's goodness because of the amazing reality that we were a bunch of rejected slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to the flesh, who have now been transformed into a holy nation and a royal priesthood? Is there... Is the bright light that we've been called to, the bright light of salvation, is it so marvelous that you cannot contain all of the good that there is to proclaim about your God? Do we care that he's in our midst, in the light, and that he has drawn us there by Christ? We have been ordained. Have you ever thought of it that way? 
I'm getting up here and, and proclaiming a message and preaching to a nation of royal priesthood that has been ordained. You've been ordained. And our hands have been filled with opportunity and responsibility for the forward movement of the kingdom of God. As a priesthood, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we are given access to God. We no longer bring the sacrifice of bull or goat for Christ, the lamb, has offered in himself a single sacrifice for all time for sins. And he is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We respond in obedience. We are being sanctified by the sacrifice of Christ. As a priesthood, our work is to daily bear one another up. Look at that attire. It has no purpose if he's not bearing up the names of the people of God. As a priesthood, we're to bear one another up. What I mean is we don't co-op that out to someone else. We don't join a church to co-op lifting one another up out to the church staff. That's not God's design. Might be a good business model. We could charge you. Like, well, I had 30 minutes of sanctification there. No, that's, that's not God's design. We don't co-op the raising up and the encouragement and the lifting up of others to, to school teachers or, or leaders or, or other people. We should be looking out for each other. I told the band this morning before they stepped up here to lead worship, I said, I want you all to know before we even go into this, the priesthood could not be indifferent to where the people are. So as you guys lead worship, don't be indifferent to where God's people are. Knowing that I would get to the point where I would look at each of you in the eyes and say, do not be indifferent to where each other are. Don't be indifferent to where those sitting around you are. We lift each other up. We bear one another up. That's part of what it means to be a royal priesthood together. One theologian states, the priesthood is no longer an elite group within the church. If, if you lived in the time of the old covenant, you were an Israelite who would bring your sacrifice, you would give it to the priesthood, and they would go and they would administer it accordingly. But you weren't going up into the holy place. You certainly weren't going into the holy of holies. Priesthood is no longer an elite group within the church. Now all believers, male and female, are priests who bring to the great high priest the offering of their lives, their praise, and their service. This is what is expressed in Romans 12. I love Romans 12, where we are called to present our entire life to God as a spiritual sacrifice, holy and acceptable, that being our spiritual act of worship all of your life. God dwelling in our midst, blessing us. But though we are royal priesthood, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by the fact that you, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, holy to the Lord. But don't take it too far. Because though we are a royal priesthood, with a daily pattern, on our best day, we are still not high priests, are we? We are still not high priests. While we no longer need a priesthood to intercede for us and administer our sacrifices for us, we still desperately need a high priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. It's just to the left of where we were in 1 Peter. Though a royal priesthood, we are still in desperate need of a high priest. I hope that as I read these next verses that you are deeply encouraged as children of God. 
and as the bride of Christ. Look at 722. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Guess who's not prevented by death from doing anything? Jesus. That's real good news. So they were appointed in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Aaron eventually died. All of Aaron's sons eventually died. But he holds the priesthood permanently. Christ holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You ever, do you realize that Christ always lives to make intercession for us? For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For this royal priesthood sitting here this morning, we are still in great need of a high priest who for us is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. These verses just told us that he is seated at the right hand of God. To be clear as to what he is doing there, don't turn but listen to Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christ is our sacrifice and our great high priest, who is currently interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. This should have a profound impact on us. Look at all that Christ is for us. We see this pattern in the tabernacle with many separate parts. I want you to look at all that Christ is for us today as a royal priesthood. In the pattern of the tabernacle, there was a daily sacrifice, and only once a year the high priest would enter into the most holy place, only once a year, nearest to God at the mercy seat. Now, Christ is seated there forever. We should be encouraged by that. Christ is seated forever in the place that the former priests could only visit. He is our high priest. He is our final substitutionary sacrifice. He is our blood atonement. He is our propitiation. We are covered in his blood and counted righteous before God. The wrath that God had towards us landed on him. That's what propitiation means. And he is our righteousness. So if we today are still a royal priesthood, what is our pattern of life? Turn over to 2 Timothy 1.13. It's back to the left just a little bit. 2 Timothy 1.13. Let's see if this translates to us today as a royal priesthood. 2 Timothy 1.13 says this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Look, a pattern again. Follow the pattern of the sound words 
that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The old covenant was more rigid, but here what we see Paul communicating to Timothy is that the new covenant is certainly more relational for us in the day-to-day movement. There is a closeness that we have to God that Israel did not have in their camp. Do we cherish that closeness? Are we thankful that we don't have to bring rams and bulls and goats to someone else to offer sacrifices for us, but that in Christ we offer spiritual sacrifices daily? We don't try to recreate the old system. There are some who read the old system and say, all right, let's do it. I can do that. That wasn't the point of the old system, to say I can do that and lose the sight of God. Rather, we're to enjoy Christ in the details of the new system, a new pattern. Action and attention to detail is carried out according to faith, not works. So what does James say? Show your faith by your works. I want you to see how that plays out. They're the same thing. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard. Show your faith by your works. We're saying the same thing there. We're not saying try to earn something that you've already been given. We're not saying try to keep something that you couldn't earn anyway. We're saying follow the pattern. Show your faith by your works. This means that we will show our faith in not negotiating the non-negotiables. Men, loving your wives as Christ loved the church, as Christ loves the church, is a pattern of the sound words that we have received. And men, it's not optional. Women, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to the loving care of Christ. This is not optional. Remember from last week that it's when we negotiate things that were never meant to be negotiated that we fall headlong into sin. Obviously, don't follow someone into sin. It's not what's being said here. But if we enter into a new pattern where we negotiate whatever we want to negotiate because, well, um, God, I'll do this and I'll, I'll give you some of this over here but not this, what we're doing there is our worship is being negatively affected because we're negotiating things that aren't supposed to be negotiated. So what are some other non-negotiables that make up the pattern of life for this royal priesthood? Forgiveness. That's not optional. We don't sit and say, you know what, I've been wronged. and I'm going to figure out if I'm going to forgive or not. No, we immediately get to the non-negotiable point of, I'm to offer forgiveness, and I need to figure out how to be moving in that direction so I don't hold a grudge, so I don't let bitterness take root, and by it, many become defiled, as it says in Hebrews. Another non-negotiable in our pattern of life is love, service. Considering others is more significant than ourselves. Seeking to outdo one another and showing honor. Pursuing purity via the word. Unceasing prayer. Not neglecting to meet together. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I'm purposefully using Paul's words to show the pattern that we have today. Not quarreling, but making peace. If you quarrel with others easily reel that in I think it's like an epidemic hello I think it's an epidemic the Lord wanted you to wake up right then I think it's a bit of an epidemic in our culture particularly even Hunt County where we're, we're better at quarreling than we are at peace peace takes work it's part of the pattern of life that we don't negotiate away we don't say well I'll be peaceful as long as everyone agrees with me Okay, God, how's that working for you? That's not how it plays out. So we don't negotiate that. We seek peace. We're peacemakers. 
We don't slander. We don't gossip. We don't let corrupt words come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, edifying others, seeking to use words that are like apples of gold and settings of silver, rightly placed to minister to and give grace to the soul of those who are hurting, not to perpetuate the problem they're going through. Keeping a close watch on our lives and on our teaching, it's not negotiable. For in doing so, it says, we will save both ourselves and our hearers not getting bogged down in the details, but enjoying Christ. As we proclaim, remember what the point of that priesthood was that we are a part of, as we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. As a royal priesthood, I encourage you this morning not to negotiate such a pattern of life. I'm going to close with a reading on the heart of the priestly life to give us some direction as we go. After the priest's consecration, which we read about this morning, just listen, listen closely. After the priest's consecration and response, their life was, for the most part, a daily grind of repeating, of performing the repeated sacrifices over and over again. The year had its high spots, for example, Passover and the Day of Atonement, but for the most part, the Aaronic priesthood it was like a doctor writing out repeat prescriptions over and over again. Each day must have been very much like any other. And the rituals the priests were asked to perform can hardly have retained their early freshness or excitement. Have you experienced that? I come to Christ. I see my salvation. I'm excited. I want to read my Bible, and I want to pray, and I want to tell others about what happened. Is it the same way a year later, two years later, a decade later? Five decades later? For the priest, it was probably very much the same. We're making another sacrifice. There's a daily, repeated pattern that we could not be excited about. The early freshness and excitement that was there has, has dwindled. Yet, it was the life to which God had called them. It was the life characteristic of their priestly privilege. The framework of their walk with God was to be one of patient continuance and well-doing. And if that is true, it is true for this royal priesthood sitting here this morning. It is the framework of our walk with God to be one of patient continuance and well-doing. So year after year, the ministry of Aaron and his successors, his sons and their successors went on. And if ever they wearied with the daily round and common task please God, the central reality of their priesthood came to their rescue and never failed to thrill their hearts and hold them steadily on course. You do not hold your course steadily by willpower. You do it by the presence of God. When the mundane seems overwhelming, when you want to lose your mind on a Tuesday, when you have had to say the same thing for the 89th time to your kids, it is the presence of God that sustains us that holds us steadily on course, that thrills our hearts because it's not drowned out by other things. Thrilled hearts. When I read that, I thought, when's the last time I felt that my heart was thrilled with the presence of God? Is this real to me? The purpose of their ministry, priesthood, even in its mundane routine, was to realize the presence of the living God among his people 
That's why we do what we do. We don't gather here because we're trying to achieve something on our own or earn something we never could achieve on our own. We gather here to realize the presence of the living God. We should anticipate when we gather together. We should anticipate when we go to the Word on our own. We should anticipate when we pray and meditate. We should anticipate when we have fellowship and conversation with other believers. We should anticipate when we leave here and we go out to a lost world that needs to hear the truth of the gospel. That we're not just going through motions. We're realizing the presence of a very real God. To hear and to share the word which he would speak. The priestly life was indeed concerned with patience and perseverance in daily duties and activities, but at its heart was the calling to live in the presence of God. That's what the calling is for you this morning. I don't want to give you, you may have heard last week's message and thought, you know what, I'm coming here to receive a new pattern. Is he going to give me a new list of things that I need to take care of? No, my encouragement to you this morning is live in the presence of God. who gave his son so that you could. That's huge. Live in the presence of God who gave his son so you would have access that you could otherwise not have. To be occupied with the things that made his presence real. What are you occupied with? Are you occupied with things that distract you from reality because you hate it? Or are you occupied with things that make the presence of your God more real? and to wait upon him, to hear his word. Let's pray. Lord, um, you are, you're a more loving God than I can comprehend. Lord, I beg you to keep this royal priesthood sitting here. I beg you to keep us from leaving here, feeling like we have a list of tasks that we have to get done, or else God doesn't love us. Rather, my prayer this morning is that we would be eager to live in your presence, to enjoy your presence, and that because of the fact that the presence exists, the light of salvation, that we would look back and we would see the darkness we've been drawn from, that we would look back and we would see the depravity and hopelessness of being rejected slaves, and we would be moved to exclamation and proclamation of how good you are to others, that we would be so eager to dwell in your presence that what flows from that is worship, showing our faith by our works and following the pattern of the sound words that are in the love and faith of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're about to take the supper And I pray that we would realize that if not for you, we would not have the right to take the supper this morning. Taking the supper is about confession and remembrance and anticipation. Help us to be filled with all three of those things rightly. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 John, I think that's right. Nope, 1 John. Had it wrong. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, and I want you all to think about this as we take the supper. My little children, hear the words of a heavenly Father loving us as we, as we would love our own children, but more so. My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We don't come to this table forgetting about our sin. We don't come to the table to take the Lord's Supper hoping that our sin is just forgotten or hoping that we could somehow muster some way to overcome that sin in the coming week. We come to the table knowing that we have an advocate, Christ Jesus, who gives us access to the Father. The reason sin is bad is not because it makes you feel guilty only, but it's because it separates us from God. The good news of the gospel is that we have a great high priest whose name is love, who gives us access to the table, who on the night that he was crucified said, take this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember your darkness. I want you to remember what I achieved for you on the cross. I want you to remember the pattern of life that I'm setting for you. And I want you to be encouraged that there is something to anticipate in eternity. We should take the supper this morning as people who are aware that we are a royal priesthood, very much still dependent upon a great high priest, Jesus Christ. In remembrance of our great high priest, take and eat. As we take the cup, it took me a while in my Christian life to realize that I didn't just need Jesus for forgiveness of sin. That's important. But what's the point? What's the point of forgiveness of sin? It's to bring us into fellowship with God. So the presence of God is important. As we take the juice, representative of the blood of Christ, know that there is no other way to be present with God and for God to be present with us. There's no other access. There's no other... I was thinking about the kids' play that they had on Pilgrim's Progress. The ones trying to jump in another way, and usually they'd fall away. There's no other way other than Christ. And it's the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the covenant, the atoning blood that gives us access to the Father. And so as believers, we, we get to take this cup with, with thankful hearts uh, in anticipation of being with him for eternity. We are very, uh, very dependent on Jesus. Uh, we take this knowing he is our portion, our life, our love, our high priest, our sacrifice, our atoning blood, the one who gives us entrance, the only way to forgiveness, the only way to God. So we take this with humble hearts in anticipation of being with God eternally. Take and drink. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for, um, for you, for your presence. I'm thankful, Lord, uh, that the Spirit gives us insight, that as we as we hear something, we can think on it, and you give us understanding. Uh, Lord, help us to be um, rightly living in your presence. As we continue in uh, offering, I pray that we would give wholeheartedly as an act of worship, showing our faith by our works and not getting things out of order. We love you and praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents, y'all can bring your kids up. It's good to be reminded to worship. Uh, Scott, I appreciate the word this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in that worship as we have our baby dedication. What is a baby dedication? Well, it's parents that get up in front of a 
church body and say our heart is to live out the gospel in front of my kiddos and to worship in that. I want to introduce these families to you. Y'all kind of wave as I mention your name. Wow. You know, I remember I used to not have to have a paper to do this. And part of it is I'm getting older. But part of it is, too, that the kids are coming like in busloads now. So I'm going to make sure we get everybody mentioned here, right? Harper Stevens, yes. Hello. Parents Clint and Kate. Tucker Holt, right here. Parents Cody and Jennifer, sisters Colin and Reese. Robert, AJ, and Allie Perry. Parents Lowell and Trish. Where y'all at? Down there on the end, okay. Sisters Haley and Kaylee. Everett Lane. Parents Derek and Lindsay. They're not here today. Oh, they're sick, not here today. Um, siblings Alyssa, Ava, Audrey, Owen, y'all remember them. Uh, Charlotte Klein, Trey, and Haley. They're down on this end. Make sure y'all get <laughs> Miles Millard, parents Bart and Shannon, siblings Sam, Gracie, Charlie, and Sophie. And Caroline Money, parents Brent and Heidi, siblings Andrew and Adele. Did I get everybody? What's really cool, as I was watching the, the video here, uh, it's different when you know who they are and you know how God delivered these kids into our, into our families. Uh, it's a privilege. And uh, these parents up here today are saying to you, we recognize God's sovereignty in this. He's placed these kids in our care. We have this responsibility and this accountability now before God. And uh, if you would, grandparents, would y'all stand up for just a second? What's really cool is some of you standing right now, you get to see kind of a fruit of your obedience in your walk and a faithful God that's been at work in the life of your family over some time and enjoy this. Parents, opportunity to worship and God's blessed you with in parents and in family. Now body, stand. Parents, this is a body that says we're gonna come and walk alongside you, be with you in this. We're here, we're a resource. We're gonna encourage and we're gonna pray for you. We have reason to worship, we have a great God. He's building this family and he's given us this opportunity to walk with each other. There's a verse we like to encourage our parents with and it comes out of Deuteronomy 6 and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them down on the doorposts of your house and all your gates. That's daily living it out in worship. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for a reminder from your word that we have a God worthy of our worship who's made provision for us, eternal provision 
Father, I pray that we would have hearts and walks that reflect that in our daily lives. Father, I thank you for each family standing up in front of this body. Their desire, Father, to follow you as they raise these children. Father, I'm thankful for families and this church body who stands with these families and walks with these families daily, encouraging and praying. Father, we thank you for the blessing of the church. Father, we love you. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Derek, Casey. Scott was about to come and tackle me. Hey, don't forget. Derek and Casey, I'll come up here. We have one more order of business here. You guys just stay up here. We're going to dismiss here pretty quick. Was there anything, other comments? Okay. This is another part of our family. God dropped in our midst and... Uh, We've had a privilege to walk with them uh, for a year. Uh, they're heading out. Uh, they're going to be uh, away from us just in distance, though. Um, we're, we're sending them. Uh, we're going with them, and uh, so we're going to make them be in contact with us, and, and uh, we're going to have the opportunity to be in contact with them and love on them. Don't make me cry, Casey. <laughs> it's been a neat opportunity uh, just to walk with these folks, and... Uh, um, looking forward to what God's going to do in our midst. Uh, so uh, I think it's appropriate we have another word of prayer. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Father, I thank you uh, for the gospel. And Father, the privilege to go and proclaim it. Uh, whether it's around the corner or down the street or on the other side of the world or uh, wherever you call us. Uh, Lord, thankful for this family who's faithful to follow you. Uh, where you've called them. Well, Father, thankful for a church body that's surrounded them with love. And uh, Father, pray that uh, you would uh, use us to encourage them. Uh, Father, that you would uh, use us to love on them. Uh, Father, thankful for that privilege. Thankful for the privilege to worship you all over the world and in everything we do. Uh, Father, we commit them to you, uh, your care your provision, knowing that it's, it's perfect. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the blessing that they've been. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.